Chapter Eight of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Borrow. Chapter Eight. Next morning I set out to ascend Dinas Brown. A number of children, almost entirely girls, followed me. I asked them why they came after me. "'In the hope that you will give us something,' said one in very good English. I told them that I should give them nothing, but they still followed me. A little way up the hill I saw some men cutting hay. I made an observation to one of them respecting the fineness of the weather. He answered civilly, and rested his scythe, whilst the others pursued their work. I asked him whether he was a farming man. He told me that he was not, that he generally worked at the flannel manufactory, but that for some days past he had not been employed there, work being slack, and that on that account joined the mowers in order to earn a few shillings. I asked him how it was he knew how to handle a scythe, not being bred up a farming man. He smiled and said that, somehow or other, he had learnt to do so. "'You speak very good English,' said I. "'Have you much Welsh?' "'Plenty,' he said. "'I am a real Welshman.' "'Can you read Welsh?' said I. "'Oh, yes,' he replied. "'What books have you read?' said I. "'I have read the Bible, sir, and one or two other books.' "'Did you ever read the Bard Cusk?' said I. He looked at me with some surprise. "'No,' said he, after a moment or two. "'I have never read it. I have seen it, but it was far too deep Welsh for me.' "'I have read it,' said I. "'Are you a Welshman?' said he. "'No,' said I, "'I'm an Englishman.' "'And how is it,' said he, "'that you can read Welsh without being a Welshman?' "'I learned to do so,' said I, "'even as you learned to mow "'without being bred up to farming work.' "'Ah,' said he, "'but it is easier to learn how to mow "'than to read the Barth Cusk.' "'I don't think that,' said I, I have taken up a scythe a hundred times, but I cannot mow. Will your honour take mine now and try again? said he. No, said I, for if I take your scythe in hand, I must give you a shilling, you know, by mower's law. He gave a broad grin, and I proceeded up the hill. When he rejoined his companions, he said something to them in Welsh, at which they all laughed. I reached the top of the hill. The children were still attending me. The view over the vale is very beautiful, but on no side, except in the direction of the west, is it very extensive, Dinas Bran being on all other sides overtopped by other hills. In that direction, indeed, the view is extensive enough, reaching on a fine day even to the Wadfa, or Peak of Snowdon, a distance of sixty miles, at least as some say, who perhaps ought to add to very good eyes which mine are not. The day that I made my first ascent of Dinas Brown was very clear, but I do not think I saw the Wilfa then from the top of the Dinas Brown. It is true I might see it without knowing it, being utterly unacquainted with it, except by name, but I repeat, I do not think I saw it, and I am sure that I did not see it from the top of Dinas Brown on a subsequent ascent, on a day equally clear, when if I had seen the Wilfa, I must have recognised it, having been at its top. As I stood gazing around, the children danced about upon the grass, and sang a song, 
The song was English. I descended the hill. They followed me to its foot, and then left me. The children of the lower class of Llangollen are great pests of visitors. The best way to get rid of them is to give them nothing. I followed that plan, and was not long troubled with them. Arrived at the foot of the hill, I walked along the bank of the canal to the west. Presently I came to a barge lying by the bank. The boatman was in it. I entered into conversation with him. He told me that the canal and its branches extended over a great part of England, that the boats carried slates, that he had frequently gone as far as Paddington by the canal, that he was generally three weeks on the journey, that the boatmen and their families lived in little cabins aft, that the boatmen were all Welsh, that they could speak English, but little or no Welsh, and that English was a much more easy language to read than Welsh, that they passed by many towns, among others Northampton, and that he liked no place so much as Slangochlin. I proceeded till I came to a place where some people were putting huge slates into a canal boat. It was near a bridge which crossed the Dee, which was on the left. I stopped, and entered into conversation with one who appeared to be the principal man. He told me, amongst other things, that he was a blacksmith from the neighbourhood of Fruabon, and that the flags were intended for the flooring of his premises. In the boat was an old, bare-headed, bare-armed fellow, who presently joined in the conversation in very broken English. He told me that his name was Joseph Hughes, and that he was a real Welshman and was proud of being so. He expressed a great dislike for the English, who, he said, were in the habit of making fun of him and ridiculing his language. He said that all the fools that he had known were Englishmen. I told him that all Englishmen were not fools, but the greater part are, said he. Look how they work, said I. Yes, said he. Some of them are good at breaking stones for the road, but not more than one in a hundred. There seems to be something of the old Celtic hatred to the Saxon in this old fellow, said I to myself as I walked away. I proceeded till I came to the head of the canal, where the navigation first commences. It was close to a weir over which the Dee falls. Here there was a little floodgate, through which water rushes from an oblong pond or reservoir, fed by water from a corner of the upper part of the weir. On the left, or south-west side, is a mound of earth fenced with stones, which is the commencement of the bank of the canal. The pond, or reservoir, above the floodgate, is separated from the weir by a stone wall on the left, or south-west side. This pond has two floodgates, the one already mentioned, which opens into the canal, and another, on the other side of the stone mound, opening to the lower part of the weir. Whenever, as a man told me who was standing near, it is necessary to lay the bed of the canal dry in the immediate neighbourhood for the purpose of making repairs, the floodgate to the canal is closed, and the one to the lower part of the weir is opened, and then the water from the pond flows into the Dee, whilst a sluice near the first lock lets out the water of the canal into the river. The head of the canal is situated in a very beautiful spot. To the left or south, is a lofty hill covered with wood. To the right is a beautiful slope or lawn, on the top of which is a pretty villa, to which you can get by a little wooden bridge over the floodgate of the canal, and indeed forming part of it. Few things are so beautiful in their origin as this canal, which, be it known, with its locks and aqueducts, the grandest of which last is the stupendous erection near Stockport, which, by the by, filled my mind when a boy with wonder, constitutes the grand work of England, and yields to nothing in the world of the kind, with the exception of the great canal of China.
Retracing my steps some way, I got upon the river's bank, and then again proceeded in the direction of the west. I soon came to a cottage nearly opposite a bridge, which led over the river. Not the bridge which I have already mentioned, but one much smaller, and considerably higher up the valley. The cottage had several dusky outbuildings attached to it, and a paling before it. Leaning over the paling in his shirt-sleeves was a dark-faced, short, thick-set man, who saluted me in English. I returned his salutation, stopped, and was soon in conversation with him. I praised the beauty of the river and its banks. He said that both were beautiful and delightful in summer, but not at all in winter, for then the trees and bushes on the banks were stripped of their leaves, and the river was a frightful torrent. He asked me if I had been to see the place called the Robber's Leap, as strangers generally went to see it. I inquired where it was. Yonder, said he, pointing to the distance down the river. "'Why is it called the Robber's Leap?' said I. "'It is called the Robber's Leap, or Llam a Llider,' said he, "'because a thief, pursued by justice, once leaped across the river there, and escaped. "'It was an awful leap, and he well deserved to escape after taking it. "'I told him that I should go and look at it, on some future opportunity, "'and then asked if there were many fish in the river. "'He said there were plenty of salmon and trout, "'and that owing to the river being tolerably high,' A good many had been caught during the last few days. I asked him who enjoyed the right of fishing in the river. He said that in these parts the fishing belonged to two or three proprietors, who either preserved the fishing for themselves, as best they could by means of keepers, or let it out to other people, and that many individuals came not only from England, but from France and Germany, and even Russia, for the purpose of fishing, and that the keepers of the proprietors, from whom they purchased permission to fish, went with them, to show them the best places, and to teach them how to fish. He added that there was a report that the river would shortly be wreathed, or free and open to any one. I said that it would be a bad thing to fling the river open, as in that event the fish would be killed at all times and seasons, and eventually all destroyed. He replied that he questioned whether more fish would be taken then than now, and that I must not imagine that the fish were much protected by what was called preserving, that the people to whom the lands in the neighbourhood belonged, and those who paid for fishing, did not catch a hundredth part of the fish which were caught in the river, that the proprietors went with their keepers, and perhaps caught two or three stone of fish, or that the strangers went with the keepers, whom they paid for teaching them how to fish, and perhaps caught half a dozen fish, and that shortly after the keepers would return and catch on their own account sixty stone of fish from the very spot where the proprietors or strangers had great difficulty in catching two or three stone, or the half-dozen fish, or the poachers would go and catch a yet greater quantity. He added that gentry did not understand how to catch fish, and that to attempt to preserve was nonsense. I told him that if the river was flung open, everybody would fish. He said that I was much mistaken, that hundreds who were now poachers would then keep at home, mind their proper trades, and never use line or spear that folks always longed to do what they were forbidden, and that Schimmel would never have crossed the brook, provided he had not been told he should be hanged if he did, that he himself had permission to fish in the river whenever he pleased, but never availed himself of it, though in his young time, when he had no leave, he had been an arrant poacher. The manners and ways of speaking of this old personage put me very much in the mind of those of Morgan, described by Smollett in his immortal novel Roderick Random. I had more discourse with him. I asked him in what line of business he was. 
He told me that he sold coals. From his complexion and the hue of his shirt, I had already concluded that he was in some grimy trade. I then inquired of what religion he was, and received for answer that he was a Baptist. I thought that both himself and part of his apparel would look all the better for a good immersion. We talked of the war then raging. He said it was between the false prophet and the dragon. I asked him who the dragon was. He said, the Turk. I told him that the Pope was far worse than either the Turk or the Russian, that his religion was the vilest idolatry, and that he would let no one alone, that it was the Pope who drove his fellow religionists, the Anabaptists, out of the Netherlands. He asked me how long ago that was. Between two and three hundred years, I replied. He asked me the meaning of the word Anabaptist. I told him, whereupon he expressed great admiration for my understanding, and said that he hoped he should see me again. I inquired of him to what place the bridge led. He told me that if I passed over it, and ascended a high bank beyond, I should find myself on the road from Llangollen to Corwin, and that if I wanted to go to Llangollen, I must turn to the left. I thanked him, and passing over the bridge, and ascending the bank, found myself upon a broad road. I turned to the left, and walking briskly in about half an hour, reached our cottage in the northern suburb, where I found my family and dinner awaiting me. End of chapter 8